This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. You know, I can speak directly to this conundrum, having had a really close friend in graduate school who was negative Wait and complaining all the time, Wait constantly a for years. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we open the mailbag to answer your questions about getting a master's degree, supporting a friend in science, and more. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 148. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Happy 2021, Dan. Is it happy, Josh? Is it happy 2021? <laughs> yeah, I had a, a Zoom New Year's Eve party, which was, I mean, it was fun enough. You know, that was really <laughs> what I walked away with. <laughs> <laughs> that's like a, that's a two-star rating. Yeah. <laughs> fun enough. Yeah, three stars, three stars. But anyway, th- we were having that conversation on New Year's Eve that there was this feeling and this mindset around the turning of the new year that somehow we were going to wake up on January 1st and things were going to be objectively different than they were the day before. And I think if the first two weeks of 2021 are any any indication, uh, that did not happen. Yeah, 2020 is not done with us, even though we are done with it. I heard one of the late night hosts, I think, said, this doesn't count as 2021. It's just the 37th of December 2020. And, and we'll start over and it'll it'll get better, I think. One thing, Josh, that is a, a making it worse for me personally is instead of having ethanol, I'm celebrating dry January this month, and I could not have picked a worse dry January. <laughs> Dan, if you could, if you can make it this month, you can probably make it any month this year. That's a it's a fair point. I'm I'm trying to practice calming myself down through <laughs> deep breathing into a paper bag, uh, plugging my ears, and trying to ignore what's going on on TV. Well, I will celebrate in solidarity with you, Dan, and we will not have an ethanol on the show. I will have uh, bubbly water from my wife's soda stream that she got as a Christmas gift. Appreciate it. Um, how is everybody doing over there? Are you guys staying safe? Yeah, doing well. I think my family is, we've decided to hunker down as much as possible. Uh, we have the vaccine right around the corner. And, you know, that's good news. That's something we can look forward to. I was reflecting just today on the fact that here we are, it's January 14th as we're recording this. And it was really just about a year ago that scientists sequenced the genome of COVID-19 and we are already injecting people, millions of people in the arm with a 95% effective vaccine. I mean, that is, that is a scientific miracle, right? That has to go down as one of the greatest scientific achievements in human history, wouldn't you say? Inarguably. It is, it is amazing. And we are appreciative. I, I know you mentioned that some of your family members are already starting to get vaccines. Is that right? Yeah, I posted this on Twitter, but I was really relieved that my 97-year-old grandma got her first dose of the COVID vaccine this week. And... She has a very active social life, so I know she will be glad for 
for the pandemic uh, to to pass by in the coming months. I'm I'm trying. I was trying to do the math on it. She was not around for the 1918 version of the flu pandemic. Shortly after yeah, that, not, sometime in the 20s. Not quite, not quite. But she has she has seen a lot in her days. And actually, my my 97 year old grandma has a a lab and science connection uh, that we should talk about on the show sometime. She has a really interesting story. So maybe we'll we'll share that sometime soon. But yeah, happy family members are starting to get vaccinated. Uh, friends are starting to get vaccinated. I'm excited <laughs> to get mine when the time comes. Uh, but in the meantime, I think we're all just trying to stay safe and do our part to slow this continuing pandemic that is not over. It is not over. And uh, some of our questions today will be related to um, things that, that happened during pandemic. So we'll get to that. Uh, before we do that, Josh, I want to mention our friends at Promega. They brought to our attention a study published in PLOS One that found over 32,000 research articles that were based on misidentified cell lines. And the authors of that article estimate that there are almost half a million more just like them. So cell line authentication is getting more and more attention. NIH now requires proof of authentication, and many journals are now requiring it for all submissions, including nature journals. So Promega scientists have been working hard to address the problem, including serving on the American National Standards Institute Committee that drafted the official authentication guidelines. They've also prepared some in-depth resources to help you authenticate your cell lines or find services that will help do it for you. So to learn more, just go to www.promega.com slash HelloPhD. And our friends at Promega sent us some cheese this week. They are based in Wisconsin, so that, that story checks out. Yep, I don't know how I can get you your share of the cheese, but I might have to just eat it all. It will all be blue by the time <laughs> I get my half. I'm just aging it for you, Dan. We also wanted to share that this podcast is sponsored by BioBox Analytics. BioBox is a data analytics platform designed for scientists and clinicians working with next-generation sequencing data. Design and run bioinformatic pipelines on demand, generate publication-ready plots, and discover insights within your data from popular public databases. Free accounts will become available in early 2021, but space will be limited. Listeners of Hello PhD can be first in line by joining the waitlist at biobox.io. That's B-I-O-B-O-X dot I-O. Be the first to be notified when Biobox opens to the public. And of course, we can't forget our patrons who continue their support. So thank you to everybody who supports us on Patreon.com. And with that, let's get on with the show. Okay, Josh, our first note, I, I won't say email because it didn't come over email, comes from our show notes. Um, you know, you can actually leave comments on our show notes. Back in 2015, we did an episode called The Four Simple Tips That Will Make Your Writing Stand Out with our good friend David Schifrin, uh, formerly of Filament Life Science Communication and Science Writing Radio Podcast. And he had this 15-point science writing checklist that you could go to his website and basically use that when you're writing non-grant, non-manuscript science writing, when you're communicating to a general audience. These are 15 things that you may want to look out for to make your science writing better. Well, we got a a note on our show notes that says, Hey, Josh and Dan, this is a very good podcast. I know this is years later. Keep in mind, this is from 2015 we posted this. I'm trying to access the material from the podcast. The following link is not available. Is it possible to get this information? I tried to check the website, but it is also not available. Can you provide me an alternative source to grab it? Because it would be really helpful for me. Uh, thank you, Vibatha. So I responded to Vibatha and said, I will check. I don't know. I don't have it. 
Uh, it was not on my hard drive. I don't think you had it, Josh. But thankfully, uh, David Schifrin did have it. He had to go to a removable hard drive in a box somewhere. That's how it wasn't even in the cloud. He had purged it. So uh, I have the file and I posted it on the show notes to episode uh, 21, I believe it was. So feel free to go check that out. That's fantastic, Dan. And now it is on our web server. So it is in the cloud, this helpful document. As long as Hello PhD is there, it will be there. Fantastic. All right, Dan, we got another email. And this one is COVID-related about uh, virtual grad school interviews, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Hi, Josh and Dan. I just started my PhD this fall in mechanical engineering. I was going through the interview process right as the COVID lockdown started in the U.S. So I only got to visit half of the schools that I was accepted to. In the end, I was deciding between a school that I got to visit in person and one that I was not able to visit. I ended up going to the school that I did not visit in person. It was definitely scary to commit to a school and a city that I hadn't been to. Talking to students on Zoom really helped get a sense of the culture, even though it was a lot less information than I got from visiting in person. I'm very happy with my decision and love my research topic and the wonderful people that I get to work with. I love the podcast and really appreciate the awesome advice that you give. It's helped me a lot in preparing for grad school and starting strong this fall. Lindsay. Wow, that is so great to hear. Yeah, we at, we when we did our uh, episode on virtual interviews, we asked for people's feedback. What was your process like? How were you feeling about it? And the fact that Lindsay actually went through this, made a decision, and came through it okay, as we hoped. I thought it was inspiring, and I just wanted to make sure we shared that. Yeah, and lots of applicants are in the process of doing virtual interviews for PhD programs right now. And I know there's a lot of apprehension out there about... Am I going to be able to get the information I need to make a good decision and pick a great program by doing these virtual visits? And hopefully, Lindsay will give you a little bit of comfort that it really is possible to learn about a program, get the information you need, and make a choice that's good for you. Love it. The next email comes from Brian. Brian says, I would first just like to say thank you. I am currently applying to physics and engineering PhD programs, and your podcast has been an invaluable resource for me. We got mechanical engineering, Josh. We got physics and engineering. This is a theme for the show today, apparently. Uh, Brian continues. I have a question that I would love to get your take on. What is the optimal way and time to email prospective PIs? In my emails to PIs thus far, I have included a bit of back my background, expressed my specific interest in their work, asked if they were taking on new students, and if so, if they would be able to meet to further discuss their research. My response has been limited, and I would like to increase my impact going forward. As far as timing, do you, know, do you think there is an optimal time over the next few weeks to email PIs so that I can form connections in advance of admission decisions? Have a safe and happy new year. Thanks. This one's tough. Yeah, this is a tough question, and I think the specific answer might differ depending on the culture of the specific field and the type of program, uh, the structure of the program that Brian's applying to. and Put on not, your engineering and physics hat. Yeah, and, and I have to admit, a uh, major, major caveat of my limited viewpoint, which is I'm in the biomedical sphere. And you know the way things typically work during admissions for biomedical programs is often there are these, this interview process where you'll meet with some faculty that hopefully you're you know interested in the type of work they do, but those aren't necessarily the exact faculty that you will be working with when you start grad school. Now, they very, mo- very well could be, but there's not this requirement to make a connection 
with a thesis advisor ahead of time. Often you come into the program and during your first year, you rotate with some different PIs before ultimately joining a lab for your thesis work. And you get that FaceTime uh, to, to help make the connection. It's not an email before you get in contact, right? I mean, you, you show up in, in the interview and you have already scheduled time to talk with faculty members. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and you actually spend weeks working with someone before you decide ultimately who you're going to work with. However, there are also programs, and I could be wrong, but sort of reading between the lines for Brian's email, uh, there are programs where that match is actually made ahead of time. Part of the process of admissions to those programs is finding a match of an advisor that you'll work with ahead of time. So you kind of go into the program knowing who you're going to be working with. And so with those types of programs, that connection you make ahead of time is really key. So when is the best time to do that? And, you know, that's kind of hard to say um, exactly. And I would likely say there's not an optimal time. Um, So I think what I might focus on is Brian mentioned that response that he has received so far has been limited and how can he increase his impact. And I think regardless of the type of program, you know, reaching out to some faculty that you might be interested in can be a really good way to not only kind of get your name out there uh, and get your foot in the door a little bit, um, but hopefully make a good impression on someone who will be an advocate for you joining the program, regardless of the structure. So I think it's really important if you're going to sort of cold reach out to faculty over email, you need to put some thought into into what you put in that message. And so I think the messages that make that have the biggest impact are ones where it really makes sense why you are reaching out to that specific faculty member. Um, so, so one thing I have seen to first start with a, an email type that's probably not very impactful is I've encountered a lot of emails where it's pretty obvious that the student wrote a fairly generic form email that could easily be blasted to multiple PIs at different places. It's not very personalized to the specific faculty person that it's being sent to. So that's what you want to avoid. Yeah, we get those emails and I delete them. <laughs> you, I mean, they're not, they're not from students, but they're from, yeah, yeah. You, you get a, a request from somebody that says, would you please review my book for your podcast? And their book is on something totally random that has nothing to do with science. No, I won't. But I recognize you probably send this to every podcast in the app store. Yeah. So you want to avoid that. So what, so what you want to do instead, and and hopefully you have done this, right, is you've done some work up front and there is a real sincere reason you want to connect with that specific person. So let's say there's a faculty person at a university that is doing research that really interests you and you have a sincere interest in possibly doing that type of work for graduate school. I think in that case, you can, you can send an email and reach out and say, Hi, you know, I have a goal of entering a graduate program uh, like yours at your institution, and I'm reaching out because I noticed you work on X. I'm really interested in this topic because why, right? And, and hopefully you can provide some evidence as to why you're interested in that topic, right? Maybe you have done some work already or you've you know, learned about the topic, you have some experience with that topic or related topic so that you can start to show that you actually did some work on the front end that makes sense why you're then sending that email to that person um, and might want to work with them. I would also recommend in that email that you consider 
attaching your CV in case the faculty person wants to learn a little more about you. But I think if the email is detailed and sincere about why specifically you're reaching out, uh, your likelihood of hearing back will probably increase drastically. That all makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I really liked how you composed that email, Josh. I, I don't think I see evidence in Brian's email to us, but I could imagine a very lengthy, here's my entire life history, followed by here's all the things I want to do with my life, followed by what I actually want, which is can I talk to you? Um, and so I'd be just a little wary of overloading that uh, that email. What I did want to mention is a book that we talked about a few episodes ago called The Early Career Researcher's Toolbox by Andres de los Reyes. And we, we interviewed him for the show. Um, he has in that book, and, and I can post a link of this in the show notes, sample form letters. Um, he runs a psychology program where you do match with the PI before you start the program. And so I think some of his advice in that book would be really useful to you. And the last thing I wanted to bring up, Josh, are there, are there people in a department that could help connect you to faculty members, maybe administrators or a director of graduate studies or somebody on the staff that could be your conduit to making those connections? Uh, there very well could be. And so if you can find out who those people are uh, from the program website, you know, that could be a great first step is reaching out, letting them know about your interest in the program, um, and maybe asking them a similar question to that you're asking us, you know, what, what is sort of the preferred method of making connections with faculty in their program? Because um, again, different disciplines just have different ways of doing things, different norms, I guess you could say. Um, so it's probably useful to find out. And, and, you know, the other thing I would recommend too, is if there are if you have connections with current graduate students in that field, pick their brain, ask them like, how did you do it? When did you reach out? What did you say? How did you make the connection that you made to get where you are? Right. And there are plenty of communities online or maybe at your university um, where you could get some of that information from people who are one step ahead of you. You may be able to get access to the people in the lab that you may want to join to the students that are already there that are, more accessible and maybe more likely to help somebody coming up. Uh, they may say, don't even bother trying to contact the PI because she's so busy she never replies and lab is terrible and we don't want you to come here. You know, <laughs> I, I think if you get no response from a place you really want to go, there are ways to get around that process. Yeah, and, you know, Dan, to to wrap this one up, I did want to circle back because one of the things you you mentioned is absolutely true. So I wanted to clarify uh, my advice, which was being specific about why you're reaching out to that person. But you're, you are absolutely right. You want to strike that balance between sincerely laying out why you're, you're reaching out, but you want to do so succinctly enough that <laughs> your email isn't a life story. So I think what can be useful is that... Exactly. So at the beginning, at the, towards the beginning of the email, being very clear about what you're asking for, and, you know, you mentioned, Brian mentions in his email to us that what he really wants is to see if faculty are able to meet to further discuss their research. So I think if that's really the ask, you want to make sure in the first two or three sentences, you just explicitly lay out, I was hoping we could set up a time to have a phone call or a Zoom chat uh, and talk a little more about your research. Then you can go into 
more of your story and why you're reaching out, but it's very clear. Uh, faculty can be very busy people. Uh, it's very clear what you're asking for. Well, and maybe it is a timing thing. The holidays just finished. People may be under a pile of email that they're digging out from under. I don't, you know, you're talking about recruiting and admissions activities going on. I'm sure it's a busy time of year, but um, Brian, I think if you're persistent, you're going to get the contacts you need. So keep us posted. I will be excited to hear what happened. And Josh, I will read the next question, if that's okay. The next question starts, I would like some advice about maintaining a healthy friend, but also lab mate relationship. I ended up joining a lab with my closest friend in the program. This is not on purpose, but we met because we were both rotating and quickly became really close. Ever since joining, she was not given the project she desired, whether because she didn't speak up or my PI was really set on this one, I'm not sure. And ever since, she has hated science in the lab. She constantly complains about the research, mostly the heavy mouse work that we do, and frequently says, do you actually enjoy doing this? Which makes me question myself, and I have to tell myself, yes, I actually enjoy science, this is why I'm here. I think she feels she is able to vent to me because we are such close friends, but at the same time, I don't want it to have a negative impact on my four to five years remaining here. I'm not quite sure how to handle supporting her, but maintaining my own mental sanity. I don't have anyone to vent to about this since we are in the same friend group. It's a weird environment to go into a PhD program and naturally become very close friends with fellow students in the program since we are all very new to the area. But then you have to go and work with them, and sometimes it can be a bit hairy. Whenever you have some time, I would really appreciate any advice you have. Signed, a friend in need. Wow, what a great question and a a tricky situation. You're going to solve it? I hope you're going to solve it. You know, I can speak directly to this conundrum having had a really close friend in graduate school who was negative and complaining all the time, constantly for years, (laughs) really brought me down. (laughs) (laughs) And what did you do about this quote-unquote friend, Josh? Just remember, the the headaches of today could be the podcast episodes of tomorrow. (laughs) I was going to say, start a podcast. That's the answer. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, Seriously, though, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about this. And Dan... You've, you've probably worked with people in the past, whether it was in grad school in a lab or, or since then, who just really didn't seem happy with where they were. They just really were not having a good experience. And, and that can be really tough on a team or on a, a personal relationship with that person, especially somebody you spend hours a day with. Yeah, no, it's... it's- very difficult. And yes, I have had this experience. I haven't always just been the person complaining, Josh. I have actually <laughs> received complaints. You care about the person. You want to support them. And yet, it feels like nothing is going to change. You know, I, I think the trap is you offer suggestions, and then they come up with a reason for why that suggestion is not going to work. And so, um, I think it's it's a really... It's a tricky situation. So I'm waiting for your brilliant advice. How did you make it through, Josh? Well, you know, I think obviously one of the things that this person who wrote in is doing is is really trying to listen and wants what's best for their friend. And sounds like they are early on in their grad school career. And, you know, I can remember that can be a really difficult transition. And sometimes once you get into a PhD program, Maybe it's a little different than you thought it was going to be when you came in. I know that was true for me. I came into grad school so wide-eyed and excited about research and what I thought it was going to be like. And, you know, after my first couple of rotations, it was really different. I felt really different than I thought I would. And that was hard. You know, that was a hard 
thing to adjust to. And one thing I wonder about is, you know, there's a few things to consider. First of all, the context, 2020 just happened. (laughs) And I think it had its own challenges on all of us in some way, but on, on grad students in many different ways, whether you were just starting out trying to get on your feet in a new lab or you were you know, a more senior grad student trying to uh, move towards graduation or finish up. So, so there's always that piece that's in the background. But one thing that jumped out to me from this email was it sounded like there was this point where the student had this idea of what they thought work in this lab was going to be like. You know, there was a certain type of project they thought they were going to do, and that didn't end up being the case. And, and there was the specific mention, too, of the work being really mouse-heavy. Yeah, there, there was a reason that this person joined the lab. They, they must have been excited at some point about the prospects there. And the subtext is that it turned into a mouse project. And I think that's where you're going. Yeah, and Dan, you know, you and I both, I think we, we share a fairly common experience here. We both ended up doing a decent amount of mouse work uh, during our PhD training. And I can remember personally... When I came into, maybe similar to the, the friend here, when I came into my lab, I didn't have the idea that I would be doing any animal work at all. You know, I thought I was going to be doing cell culture and, and molecular genetics and things like that. And just the direction my project ended up going um, really ended up going in a more immunology, mouse-heavy uh, direction that I would not have anticipated at the beginning. Whereas by the last two years of my PhD, I was doing mouse work almost every day for hours at a time. And I can honestly say it wore on me. And when I was ready to transition to a postdoctoral position, that was towards the top of my list, was looking for an opportunity where I did not have to do any more animal work. And I can say when I started my postdoc lab, I almost felt this freeing (laughs) sensation to be able to go in the lab, do my project, uh, do my science, knowing there was no chance that I was going to have to do any animal work. Now, there's nothing against... Yeah, I, I'm sure... Yeah, yeah, I think, I think you're saying that there's nothing, there's nothing against animal work. And I am sure there are people on the planet that can do it and it has no impact on their mental health. But I know, um, I know many people who've done it who it does weigh on them. It does sort of grind down your, um, your emotional health in some way. And I don't... You know, we can talk about the philosophy of why that is, but it is hard work and um, it is not for everybody. And finding a project without it is probably net going to be a benefit for many people. You're absolutely right, Dan. And and the advice I guess I would give is, one, see if there are people at your institution that your friend can talk to, right? I know at our institution, there are you know, there might be people in your program who are there that can offer advice. And, and you know, this might not be your PI, right? This might be some other trusted faculty uh, in the department. It might be a director of graduate studies. It might be a career person, uh, so a career services type person, someone at your in your department or at your university that this person could possibly just talk to openly about their situation, how they're feeling, because one thing I do feel fairly confident about is that this isn't going to magically get better as time goes by, right? This has the potential to go really bad over as years drag on, right? And and one thing I try to encourage students to do that they often don't feel like they have the agency to do is make a change. This person's still towards the beginning of their training. And 
maybe it's worth having a conversation with the PI about, you know, this project is really not working for me. It feels so locked in in that moment, though. I mean, you don't feel that you have that agency. It is it is challenging as a graduate student to speak up for yourself and say, I'm on the wrong track and I want to be on a different track. But but then everything runs through your head. Well, it's too late. Well, I don't have the authority to do that. I was lucky to get a job in this lab in the first place. How could I be the one that talks to the PI about it? Uh, if only I had done this, this, and this you know, a year ago, then I wouldn't be in this position. I'm just playing my own mental tracks from when I was in graduate school. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right, Dan. But I would say there are several things that always jump to the forefront of my mind that I would possibly change if I could change anything about the academic training structure. And one of those I think would be relevant here. I wish that it was less of a big deal for grad students to switch labs. And I almost wish that there was almost this set decision point, maybe after you've been in the lab for a year, where you could decide, like, okay, is this really working out? Like, is this a good fit for everyone? Is this what I thought it was going to be? Is this sending me in the direction I want to go? And if the answer is yes, great, keep going. But if it's not, okay, well, now would be a good point to try something new. And I know a number of of students, uh, friends of mine, colleagues, uh, students I work with now, who made the decision at some point to switch labs because the situation they were in was not sustainable for them. And I think, Dan, in pretty much every instance, it ended up being such a better circumstance um, having changed labs. But I understand that students feel really self-conscious about doing that or like there's a stigma behind it. But I can tell you, I've known plenty of students who made that decision much farther along in their grad school process um, than even it sounds like this individual is at. So, you know, to the person writing in to us, these are some of the things you might gently mention to uh, to your friend, but but you should know as a peer, as a friend, it's ultimately not your responsibility to carry the full weight uh, of the challenges that that your friend and colleague uh, is going through because it's going to be hard enough. It's hard enough for any grad student on their own to get through. So as much as you can, encourage this. You know, encourage your friend to uh, seek help, get advice from somebody else in your department play this podcast episode <laughs> back, uh, whatever you want to do. But you can always make a change uh, if things aren't working out for you. All right, Dan, one more email. This came in from Mel. Hi, I'm a huge fan of the podcast ever since I discovered it a few months ago. All your tips and advice are very helpful, and I wanted to reach out and get your input on doing a master's program before pursuing a PhD. I graduated with a bachelor's in biology in 2019, and I've been working in industry for the past year and a half. I got started with research a bit late in my college career and joined an immunology lab during my senior year. I was previously on the pre-med track before, so I was primarily focused on that before I got into research. I feel that my experience is limited compared to many others who apply directly to a PhD program, so this is why I wanted to get a master's first. I'm hoping to get more lab experience, learn more in the classroom, and work with faculty who could write me strong letters of recommendation. I'm also hoping to explore different fields within the biological sciences realm to figure out my exact interests. Please let me know if you have any suggestions about this. I've heard mixed things about whether or not a master's could actually hinder my admissions to a PhD program, and I want to make sure I'm choosing the best best path for myself. Thank you, Mel. Oh, can I can I take this one? I'm not going to channel my inner Josh. Go for it, Dan. What would Josh say here? Okay. Because I've I've spent enough years talking to you about graduate training and the value of a master's degree, and the value of experience. And here's what I think Josh would say. I think Josh would say that 
getting a master's degree is not actually the best way to get into a PhD program, that you would be better off going to find a research, uh, a technician job or some kind of research job in an academic lab. And that, A, preserves your optionality. If you hate it, you didn't just commit to two years and several thousand dollars, uh, tens of thousands of dollars probably to get a master's degree. And B, you'll be able to have contact within that laboratory environment to the whole department where you'll get to make some contacts and see you'll be making money while you do it. How'd I do? Uh, That's pretty good, Dan. Uh, That does sound like advice that I would give. I will just add a few caveats to that. Huzzah! (laughs) Uh, For the most part, Dan, you're totally spot on. I think, you know, Mel sounds fairly certain that they want to go to a PhD program, that that's the ultimate goal uh, for training, that this master's would be a stepping stone uh, to that PhD program. And if that's the case, Dan, you're absolutely right. You know, for PhD programs, like Mel is talking about, research experience at a big research institution is probably the best way to get experience to be as competitive as possible for those types of programs. Now, what I don't want to do is I don't want to just blanket discount all master's programs and all people who choose to do a master's. Um, I'm in the process of going through uh, admissions for our own biomedical PhD program. And it's not to say that individuals with master's degrees or going through master's programs are not competitive, but I, I think it's worth mentioning that not all master's programs are created equal. So I think if a master's program is something you're considering with the goal of ultimately transitioning to a PhD program, you want to make sure that you're going to get the type of experience that will help you be ready and competitive for a PhD program. So is it a research intensive master's program? Will you be spending most of your time working in a research lab on an independent project where you're going to get a strong letter recommendation? Or is it really more coursework heavy with maybe a little bit of research, right? Is it at a large research institution like the ones that you want to apply for for PhD? Um, If the answer is yes, it is, then that research experience probably will give you pretty good bang for the buck as you apply for PhD programs down the road. However, if it's not, if it's at a smaller school with less uh, research resources, where you'll have more limited opportunities to participate in research while you're there, then it may not, that time of a year or two may not serve you as well as doing what Dan recommended, uh, which is finding a research position um, as a technician or in a post-baccalaureate type program. I'm, I'm a little curious to know in a master's program that is research intensive, are you more likely to be given a project that is your own that you can put your stamp on than you would be if you were a technician where you'd be expected to do things related to a bunch of different projects, but maybe not have ownership over the research that you're doing? It's really possible. Uh, you know, you theoretically would be working on a master's thesis, right? So presumably that would mean you're working on some independent project. Well, you see a lot of applications, right? So so you've seen people who take technician jobs and you've seen master's programs. Have you have you noticed a pattern? Are there differences? You know, I think it depends. It really, I think it depends on your goals and it depends on the lab that you join. So I think wherever you end up, whether you end up in a master's program, working in a lab 
under that capacity or you end up as a technician uh, working as a job in a lab, I think it's important to be upfront about what your goals are. One thing I can say, though, is faculty are really eager to train people who have that goal of going on to graduate school like they did. Right. And so I think if you're upfront about those goals, most faculty at universities are more than happy to help you get experience that's going to benefit the lab, but also that's going to help you grow and in, in the ways that you want to. So I would encourage you to be upfront about the goals that you, you do have. Um, and, you know, the last thing I want to mention here is uh, one of the things that Mel mentioned uh, in the email was feeling like their experience was limited compared to many others who applied directly into a PhD program. And I wanted to point out, because I have, you know, I have these data that for our own PhD program, again, we are a large uh, biomedical PhD program. 70% of the students who come into our program on average worked for a year, two years, three years or more in a lab, either doing a master's or working in a research job before coming into our program. Only 30% came straight out of undergrad. So regardless of what you do, whether it's going to get a master's degree, going and work for a year or more, that is the more standard way of doing things. Like you're not atypical, you're not behind uh, at all. In fact, that experience that you get after graduation is really looked upon favorably by admissions committees. Mel says, I've been working in industry for the past year and a half. So this may have been, um, you know, over the course of 2020, and I don't know what COVID did to those years and months, but there's some industry experience uh, that may not be the same as having large academic institution experience. Is that your take? Yeah, sometimes academic admissions committees don't know exactly what to do with industry experience, uh, but I think it's worth, I mean, that experience is valuable too. And I really do think with another really key full-time research experience for the next year or so, um, and another person to vouch for you and write your letter of recommendation, in addition to a letter of recommendation from the experience you had in industry, and it sounds like you know, Mel got involved, even though for a short period of time, in an immunology lab during their undergraduate. You know, those are three really solid experiences that you might have by the time you're ready to apply a year from now or two years from now, and you should be in good shape. All right, Josh, I am going to close the mailbag for this episode. I do appreciate you taking the time and connecting uh, and for your solidarity with fizzy water. Doing what I can. The trauma will be over soon. <laughs> we'll do a different flavor of fizzy water every episode in January. How about that? And we'll be back to beer in February. Sounds good. I'll look forward to it. If anybody listening has a question or a topic idea, we obviously would love to hear it and answer your questions on the show. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback, and it helps new listeners to find the show. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We appreciate the bubble water money, uh, and thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons. All right, Dan, we have entered a new year of podcasting. So I, I look forward to all of the great podcasts that 2021 will bring. All right, Josh, and, and be safe. It is dangerous out there with, uh, at least in the United States, COVID rates higher than they were back in the spring. So I hope everybody is careful. Get your vaccine as soon as you can. And we'll look forward to a more normal fall, hopefully. 
Hopefully so, Dan. We will see you in a couple weeks. See you then. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. I wonder who it's from. Is that from uh, Blue's Clues?